it was a, a good task force. Learned a lot about different cultures. I was a pretty typical army colonel, and I was pretty direct in the way I approached problems. The Egyptian commander taught me to smoke cigarettes and drink three cups of coffee before we discussed any business. And that was an interesting, it took us at least 45 minutes of talking about our families and our children before we would get down to business. And it was pretty typical for their culture. And I was really appreciative of that. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome retired Army Major General Dr. Richard A. Stone to WarDocs. Dr. Stone is a board-certified dermatologist with extensive experience in entrepreneurial businesses and commercial federal uniform services healthcare delivery. He has served in many strategic leadership roles in the U.S. Army Reserves and on active duty, including multiple deployments. Following retirement from uniform service, Dr. Stone served the nation at the Veterans Health Administration, including time as the executive in charge and acting undersecretary of health for America's largest healthcare system. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, you will hear some remarkable stories of Dr. Stone's experience leading multinational medical units into combat and working at the highest levels of medical strategic leadership. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl, and I'm joined by Army vascular surgeon Dr. Kevin Neary. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Major General Dr. Richard A. Stone to Wardox. Rich, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. So, Dr. Stone, please tell our listeners about your pathway to joining military medicine. So, I'm old enough to uh, have been part of the draft lottery when I was a freshman in college. I sat watching the um, removal of various birth dates from little balls by congressman in a big lottery type uh, vat. I sat with a Air Force contract on my lap, deciding where I was going to be. And if I came in under 40, I was going to sign the contract. I came in 325. And um, my uh, roommate or my suite mate across the hall came in number one. He went off and uh, said that he wanted to choose his branch of service. And he joined the Marines and was killed later in Vietnam. That said, yeah, I felt it was entirely unfair that my life went unchanged and his didn't. And that was true for all of those. I think they went up that year in 1970 to number 125. So therefore, when I finished medical school, it was always my intent to join the military. Just so happened that I was married with kids at the time as I was finishing my residency. I therefore joined the reserves rather than the active component. That all went really well and until uh, September 11th. And on September 11th, my life, like many people's lives, changed. And I spent the majority of the next uh, 14 years, probably at least half of it, on active duty voluntarily. So how did you decide upon dermatology as your specialty? I was doing my internal medicine residency, and um, I was working in the city of Detroit and in ERs to make enough money to support my family. I found both internal medicine and ER in inner city settings, pretty difficult work in which I found it terribly frustrating. 
and uh, made a decision, therefore, to switch sort of directions and go to dermatology. And I still practice a day or two a month. And I'm really appreciative of the fact that I can do that in dermatology. That would be much more difficult in internal medicine or in the surgical subspecialties. So before 9-11, you were a physician and then commanded the 323rd General Hospital. And then right after 9-11, you were the commander of the newly developed 9-11 or 9 forward surgical team. Tell us about the experience and maybe the difference between active duty and reserve units preparing to deploy and provide medical care across the globe. Yeah, I think um, the one thing you never have to worry about in the reserve components is the readiness of your clinical delivery system. You know, these are people working full-time every day in their clinical delivery system jobs, and it's pretty rare that you've got somebody assigned that's sort of out of skew. Certainly as a dermatologist, me being the head of a forward surgical team was a pretty unique assignment, but that didn't change the fact that it was my job to get that unit ready to go. And it did eventually deploy with appropriate skill sets of surgeons and and anesthesia and critical care uh, experts. But I think the difference in the reserve components is you compress all of that sort of non-medical sustainment of your clinicians into really just field work that's done two to three days a month. And it works out pretty well with the understanding that when you mobilize this group, they're going to have to go through some sharpening of their field deployment skills before they get out the door. On the other side, in the active component, pulling people away from clinical work in order to do that, uh, that sustainment is just as difficult. In 2003, you were the commander of Task Force 44 in Bagram, Afghanistan. This position had you in charge of a multinational task force with 29 medical units and over 1,000 personnel from multiple countries. What were some of your memorable experiences from that deployment, and what lessons did you learn? So I arrived in Afghanistan in 2003. We had been mobilized as a combat hospital to go into southern Iraq. We had trouble with the Turks at that time, and we had buried the hospital underneath the uh, armored division on a ship. And we just couldn't get it out. So we got diverted into Afghanistan as a replacement hospital, as the lead sort of complex trauma unit in that part of Afghanistan. I arrived as the hospital commander, ended up taking over the multinational task force. It was a really very, very difficult deployment in that large numbers of pediatric casualties. We were pretty ill-prepared for pediatric work. Thank God for my respiratory therapists and anesthesia providers because they were able to reconfigure ventilators for children. The big uh, issues we had was also the fact that we were a multinational task force that got the Egyptians, uh, as when they came into the war, it was their first deployment outside the Middle East. And um, they were uh, extraordinarily well-trained and brought some really huge skill sets that allowed us to care for. Uh, much larger numbers of civilian casualties. Also had the South Koreans with us. Uh, They were also up in the northern part of the country. And uh, the Jordanians uh, were with us also. And uh, they were up in Mazar-e Sharif um, at the time. And uh, they did such a good job that there was complaints from the civilian healthcare delivery system that they were putting them out of business. And uh, so it was a good task force. Learned a lot about... um, different cultures. I was a pretty typical army colonel, and I was pretty direct in the way I approached problems. 
the Egyptian commander taught me to smoke cigarettes and drink three cups of coffee before we discussed any business. And um, that was an interesting, it took us at least 45 minutes of talking about our families and our children before we would get down to business. And it was pretty typical for their culture. And I was really appreciative of that. It's also appreciative uh, at that time, President Karzai was uh, in power. He was very gracious to uh, our medical service members who not only provided protective teams to him in case of attack on him when he was moving, but also to the work that we were doing to improve the health and well-being of the Afghan people. And he, he showed great uh, graciousness. And I know there's a lot of debate on what kind of leader he was, but from my standpoint, he showed uh, tremendous graciousness towards the sacrifice the American medical soldier was making. So you were there pretty early in the Operation Enduring Freedom campaign, and you mentioned that you had some struggles with pediatric care. How agile was the medical system or the task force to adapt to needs that just came up that weren't anticipated? Yeah, it was as agile as the people you had on the ground. And the more experienced people you had on the ground, the more agility you could deliver. Whether I was dealing with shortages of blood or I was dealing with technological problems of creating a ventilator circuit for a pediatric patient, it was all based on what people could figure out. Now, that was a stage in the war where we had no diesel fuel. So literally, we were using jet fuel in our generators and in our vehicles that we added oil to every tank. And it was just the creativeness of everything from our mechanics to the skill sets of the people you had on the ground that got us through the deployment. I will tell you quite honestly, I ran into a situation where we had a school bombing and we had over a hundred kids that were victims of pretty horrific bombing. And uh, the Egyptian hospital filled, we filled, we ran out of blood and we were getting ready to go into combat operations. and. You know, I had to determine that there was uh, no ability to deliver blood to those pediatric patients, and I ordered it to be stopped, uh, that no additional units, because I wouldn't have enough for coalition soldiers or American soldiers who might be injured. So I woke up in the middle of the night in my usual not being able to sleep at 3.30 in the morning, began walking through the hospital, and I found all the soldiers lined up to give fresh blood to the kids. And they all looked at me, and I looked at them. Nobody said anything, and I just walked on. But it was that kind of creativity, innovation, and and frankly, quiet heroism that allowed us to be so successful. You know, I don't care which component you're from. I found all soldiers just about the same and uh, with just different skill sets. And I was appreciative of the fact that people came with just really unique skill sets, especially out of the reserve components. There's people with amazing skills that could get us to fix stuff and correct problems. And um, there were some pretty unique and pretty interesting stories. We had great difficulty with uh, people putting bombs inside of um, tanker trucks delivering fuel to us. So they brought radiation-based units in and they would irradiate to try and take x-rays of the trucks as they'd come through the gates. Well, you know, it was my... <laughs> radiation experts that uh, were able to calibrate those trucks and make sure that we didn't harm anybody as we were doing that work. But uh, I, I was very appreciative that I happened to have a radiation repair expert with me who was part of the task force. He actually was a pharmacy technician that was able to do that work. 
there any clinical stories involving coalition members that uh, are memorable to you from that experience in Afghanistan? Well, you know, that was a stage early in the war where in order to get full benefits, if you were killed in combat, you couldn't die immediately. And we had to actually apply to the Pentagon to get people retired because if they retired, their families got a different set and a more robust set of benefits than if they died upon arrival in the emergency room. And it created some pretty horrific environments. It was uh, actually January 2004 that Congress changed that. But I will tell you that early in the war, I thought that some of our policies were really poorly developed. And um, I thought the Pentagon was really slow in order to change some of those HR policies that were so horrific and really did a tremendous disservice. The other story I'll tell you that's, uh, frankly, a, a little more humorous is we arrived in Afghanistan, went through our left seat, right seat ride. And about uh, two weeks after taking full control, we had a snake bite come in of an American soldier that had a poisonous snake bite. And I remember being debriefed by uh, the previous commander that we had some Russian snake anti-venom that was given to us by the previous unit. And they said, it's all written in Russian, but it's the anti-venom that the Russians formulated in their 10 years in Afghanistan. And it really works. So keep it. It's in the refrigerator in the pharmacy. So we sent down to the pharmacy for the anti-venom and they said, there isn't any. And I went down and I said, I know it's here. And we started tearing apart the refrigerators. And the head pharmacist came in. He said, oh, well, that stuff that was written in Russian, we didn't know what it was. We threw it out. So I will tell you that a fast mover came out of Lonstool with anti-venom. And uh, we had a good outcome with the service member, thank God. It was uh, pretty tenuous for a while, but uh, that was flown down and uh, we did okay with it. But I was not a happy person that we threw out the uh, anti-venom. But those are the sort of uh, clinical things we ran into. There was a stage we were early in, and uh, we were all exposed to uh, the burn pits. And I don't think we'll ever know what's in the burn pits. And But I think we're all recognizing the fact that um, particulate inhalation has had a substantial effect on the veteran population from the war. And, you know, most of us all experience each, some period or permanent coughing coming back from that. and. It's interesting that um, my predecessor died of a rare cancer, and I've had uh, multiple people from my task force that died of, of rare cancers, and I don't know if we'll ever sort that one out. So you had the opportunity to command a combat support hospital in the reserve components a couple times, and one of the things that reserve component often faces is problems with attrition and problems with time to mobilize. And I know you must have struggled with those when you were commander. How did you approach that? And how did you solve that problem? Well, the Army did me a big favor, and that is that I had 540 people, and they asked me to deploy 148 in the theater. And so I did okay with that. I think one of the things that we faced in the reserve components and the active components is the sustainment of trauma-trained surgeons. You know, I think our anesthesia providers, we can do pretty well with, but uh, trauma surgeons, critical care specialists, neurosurgeons are in short supply. And I think that if you're going to deploy them for short periods of time in the reserve components for 90 days or some period of time and then rotate them out, I'm respectful of their practices, but it creates a huge drain. And it means that for, a, you know, every deployment, I need four people for every year I'm deployed. 
to do one mission or one billet or one FTE. And that's not sustainable. Not only that, you can't sustain the workforce. And therefore, we've seen a tremendous attrition in the reserve components. And I think we're going to have to really sweeten not only the reimbursement and salaries, but also the incentives for everybody that's in trauma services if we're going to sustain this workforce for the future. I think, therefore, although you may see nurses and anesthesia providers and pharmacists and respiratory therapists out of the reserve components, keeping the physician, um, especially the surgically competent physician, is going to be very, very difficult. And we're going to have to find some unique ways to approach that. And I'm sure you've heard that from other people you've talked to in this this process, but a really tough one. I think the second piece of readiness is the readiness of the materials coming out of depots. One of the reasons we were so successful is we were able to change really the processes of how we sustained the readiness of the combat hospital coming out of Sierra Army Depot. And we were able to change those processes pretty quickly. I was blessed with having a fair amount of expertise in Lean Six Sigma. And I had a number of people with me that were black belts in Lean Six Sigma. We just literally, when the train showed up, 85 rail cars, we changed all the processes that the Army had developed in order to get that unit ready to go back and be shipped out of country. And so I'm not sure that the active component does much better with it, even though there's personnel ready to go. I think there's such evolution in trauma-related care that keeping that material up to date and ready to go and not in the manufacturer's boxes, but actually being combat readiness verified that you've taken it out of the box, it actually works. And when you ship it, you've got a piece of equipment that's going to work. Uh, whether it's an infuser or a warmer or a monitor, that material is changing so fast that I think we need a different model of how we maintain readiness in the depots. And whether we go back to, and I'm dating myself, to the pre-positioning of materials and uh, keeping them warm forward or follow a you know marine-type model where we float stuff at higher levels than we currently do, and maintain readiness that way with biomeds. I think if you sat with a biomed and interviewed them, they'd give you an ear on our relative readiness levels of that type of equipment. So once promoted to Brigadier General, you served as the first commander of the Medical Readiness and Training Command, an organization command structure to ensure medical unit training was appropriate for battlefield patient care. How did you determine if our medical units were ready and how did you address any competency deficits? Yeah, well, we're still arguing about competency deficits on what it takes to keep you as a surgeon ready to go. Uh, you know, how many cases do you need to do? I've been convinced for many years that you won't forget as a surgeon how to move your hands and your ability to have those hands move efficiently comes back really, really quickly, even if you're not doing large numbers of cases. I think where we run into trouble is our memory of pharmaceuticals and fluids and fluid management. I thought the uh, United Kingdom in their model of trauma resuscitation in using their ER provider to maintain fluid management and blood management was a really unique way to think about this. And I spent some time up in York, England later in the war as we took a look at the United Kingdom model of trauma resuscitation. One of the things we did in the Medical Readiness and Training Command is we focused primarily 
I, you know, I let the debate go on on individual readiness and let everybody fight about that. But I was most interested in unit-based readiness and team-based readiness. And therefore, we spent a lot of time early in the stand-up of that unit looking at team-based work in modeling of behaviors and team interaction. You know, most trauma centers around the United States have pretty robust um, med sim centers, but I still think we're not as robust as we need to be in team-based interaction and debriefing team interaction. I've spent a lot of time the last uh, half a dozen years in high reliability outcomes and high reliability transformation, both in the Air Force when I was with uh, Booz Allen Hamilton as well as with the VA as we transformed the VA into a high reliability organization. Almost all high reliability outcomes and reduced patient harm comes from not individual skills, but from team-based interaction and how those teams react to each other. Unfortunately, I think medical school today still trains us to think of the physician as sort of the top of the heap and everybody else works for the physician. It's very similar to where we were with pilots 30 years ago, where the pilot was the king and everybody else just paid attention to that. And, and now you recognize various checklist models and team interactions that although the physician may still be the technical expert in the room, everybody delivers value and you can reduce harm significantly and reduce and improve readiness by really having the team interaction at a much more mature level. In 2009, you served as the principal policy staff officer for the reserves in the office of the Surgeon General. What were the biggest challenges facing U.S. Army Reserve medical units at that time, and what did you do to address them? Yeah, it was about keeping personnel. It was about sustaining personnel that far into the war, and our attrition of especially surgical specialists was huge, and uh, therefore it was about talking to Congress and talking to Army leadership about enhancing incentives to keep people in. And as much as I found it difficult, I will tell you that people's practices were substantially disrupted. And the only way you could overcome that is with financial incentives. Those were difficult conversations in 2009 and 2010. And, um, you know, I don't think we've really done well since then in really restoring the integrity of the force. I therefore believe that expansion of things like the Uniformed Services University into the reserve components. People are really suffering with student debt in the professional ranks. I think there's ways to handle that and support that in exchange for additional service obligations are probably the way to get at that. So a couple of years later, you were activated to active duty and served as a deputy surgeon general, as well as a deputy commanding general for support. Tell us what led to that activation onto active duty and what were you doing? Well, when I came back out of uh, Afghanistan, I had been working for Lloyd Austin, who had become a very good friend. And he talked to Jim Peake and said, gee, why don't you keep Rich on active duty? He's doing a good job. I'd been away. That deployment was a year and a half, and it was a long time. I had little kids, and I decided to go back to the reserve component. And I found that that was probably a mistake. I was all in and needed to go back on active duty. And I felt much more comfortable to stay on active duty. At about that time, Eric Schumacher came to me. He'd taken over after some of the issues we had at uh, Walter Reed. And um, Eric said, look, the budgets are changing. Every one of my senior flag officer leaders 
has had more money than they could ever dream of throughout the war. And we're going to have some financial problems. He said, I need somebody who on the civilian side has managed a budget. And one of my areas of expertise on the civilian side was to straighten out troubled business units for Sisters of Charity, Sisters of Mercy, Trinity Health, Ford Hospital Systems I'd worked for. But my expertise was to straighten out troubled business units. And um, he said, I need somebody that's actually balanced a budget. And he said, I think you could really help us be a better team. And so he asked me to, and I came on and then spent the rest of my career really on active duty. And uh, it was a great decision. And I was welcomed into the ranks of some pretty cohesive group of people. And it was, uh, it was good. Where throughout your career did you develop these skills in balancing budgets and business salvage in the healthcare system? Yeah. So when I finished medical school and started practice, the hospital across the street from where my practice was, was building a new hospital. So not really realizing what I was doing, I bought a bunch of property around the hospital and began building medical condominiums. And I discovered how quickly you could get into trouble or be successful in financial partnerships. And I was successful enough that the Sisters of Charity asked me to serve on their finance board. And for a decade, I sat on their finance board and I learned more about budgets, bonds, uh, New York financing of construction projects. And um, as part of that, I began taking over various areas of operations that were struggling. And it didn't take me very long to figure out where costs were. And uh, that's where I developed that. And all of that was developing very well. And we were restored the financial integrity of a number of operating units when September 11th happened. And my whole plans for my future running commercial healthcare systems changed. So at the end of your military career, you were part of the uh, healthcare operations transition team for the Defense Health Agency. And it seems like we're still transitioning with the Defense Health Agency. Tell us a little bit about that job and what you were doing at that time. So they asked me to go over in my last year of active duty and do all the business process analysis of what the Defense Health Agency could take on and what it couldn't. And we went through sort of all 25 or $30 billion worth of expenses and broke it down. I worked with the general accounting office using some business models. They had a pretty nice model that I felt we could get through standing up the Defense Health Agency and not get a whole bunch of nasty reports written about us if I worked directly with them. And so we broke down all the costs. We looked at efficiencies. We looked at where we were inefficient where we were doing things three, four different ways that we could bring together in a common platform. And when I finished that work, they said, look, you know, you know where every dollar is hidden in the defense health system. Why don't you take over as the temporary head of operations until we get the permanent people in place? And I was scheduled to retire in January of 14. And so I was happy to do that and continue that work. And I got a chance to work with some really, really bright people like Al Middleton who at that time was a senior civilian inside the DHA and had extensive experience inside of TRICARE. And so, you know, it was one of those great jobs where every day you showed up and you learned something. And so it was good. You know, the, the Defense Health Agency and the services have struggled. I believe in care integration. I believe in the integration of processes. I think there's ways to maintain the beauty of what I loved about Army medicine and what Army medicine has given and still bring these things together effectively. I think that the Defense Health Agency needs the field operations of the services because you can't run 
huge continent-wide operations without a field operating agency. And um, I think there's ways to get there, but it's been terribly laborious and frankly has done, I think our service members a disservice the amount of uh, infighting and slowness that has occurred as we move towards some sort of unification. Following your military service, you held several key healthcare leadership positions within the government, including Deputy Undersecretary for Health and later Acting Undersecretary for Health. You were also the executive in charge of the Veterans Health Administration. How is the VA healthcare mission different from the DOD healthcare mission? And how do these large organizations work together to ensure seamless care for beneficiaries? Much more complex on the VA side, and it's because of the lifetime commitment to the patient. When you think about what we did in DOD, we had find large young families with at least one part of that family incredibly healthy. Lots of musculoskeletal problems, acute episodic injuries, lots of OB, but really young families that we had for a few years and then they would move on. It was frankly a much smaller portion of the DOD care population that were, you know, long-term complex care. In the VA, it's a lifetime commitment of responsibility that you're going to carry people from the time they get off of active duty or leave service until and after their death with the National Cemetery Association. So what I found was that I was dealing with these long-term problems from cancers to inhalation problems to you know new discoveries on what Agent Orange did or didn't do. And it was really complex care. Not only that, I was dealing with this chronic evolution of things like hypertension and diabetes-induced renal disease, resulting eventually in the need for either dialysis or transplantation. I was dealing with cognitive decline. And we had these huge issues related to how long could you keep a veteran with various types of cognitive decline or Alzheimer's living independently and in their home and what happened when they needed institutionalization and how would you handle that? And I found it was a really humbling experience just how complex a lifetime commitment to healthcare was. I found very few healthcare systems in America thought in the manner of a lifetime commitment. Almost everybody is even if it's a chronic disease, it's an acute exacerbation of a chronic disease. They take care of it really well. And then they just sort of pass you off into a transition of care and nobody really integrates. That ability to do integration is unique. Um, Kaiser does a pretty good job of it and really approaches, especially on the West Coast, does a really good job of that sort of same model of care integration. But I think it's one of the fundamental issues that we've had throughout this pandemic is the failure to integrate healthcare. And it's why delivery units like the VA and places like Kaiser have done much better than some of the other that have not provided really firm care integration. What did you find was the biggest challenge in transitioning service members from active duty into the VA healthcare system? Because sometimes it seems like there's so many processes involved into determining what benefits they have and how they get transitioned. What were some of the challenges? Well, the bureaucracy is too tough. Frankly, the bureaucracy is so tough. And you're dealing with a service member that just wants out. 
they've made a decision to get out. And the majority of them are not retirees. The majority of them serve four or five years and they just want out and they don't want to hear about it. And they're five years down the road before they realize they've got a problem. They got to come back and recreate their records. You know, I argued for an opt out program where you were automatically enrolled in VA health care when you got off of active duty. You don't want to use it. OK, don't use it. But you're enrolled and you're there. And I think that's much better than an opt in program where literally, you know, I would have families coming forward of a 90 year old veteran who'd never used this before trying to find out where 60 and 70 year old documents were in order to qualify people for care. And I just didn't think that was right. And so that was the primary challenge. And the other thing is, is, you know, we are motivated as veterans really taking care of our brothers and sisters. And almost universally, people that weren't enrolled would say, I'm not sick enough. I don't really believe it was caused by my service. And, you know, some other guy that's much sicker or hasn't done as well or been as blessed as I am is the one that should have care. And so they would step aside and let somebody else pass them. And that made us crazy trying to get people enrolled. You know, there's a little over 19 million veterans in the country, about nine and a half million get their care from the VA. And I can tell you, I wouldn't go anyplace else. I get 99% of my care from the VA because it is so integrated. And if I'm traveling someplace, my doctor can pick up the phone to whatever VA is near me and will talk about my case and get me in. Now, maybe I get a little bit of special care because of the positions I've had. But, you know, that's really what I found across the board. You know, I see a single physician outside of VA, and that's because the VA sent me there because it was a specialist. And so this is really good medicine. And I think the more we could move DOD and VA closer together, I think would move the readiness issues that are inside DOD much easier to solve because of the complexity of cases. And I think there's a lot that could be done. And frankly, if a veteran can't get into a VA hospital, they want to go to an active duty hospital. And so you begin to look at some of the moves that are going on inside DOD at this time. I really struggle with some of the decisions being made, and I really question where we're going. So that's a whole other issue. Yeah, I am, I'm sitting next to an active duty vascular surgeon who I am sure would be more than willing to partner with VA care to take care of those complex, you know, in partnership with the VA. And yeah, let me give you an example of uh, the type of thing in North Florida, Northeast Florida, I buy or I bought when I was running the VA 40 to 45 beds every day. I filled 40 to 45 beds with veterans. The Jacksonville Naval Hospital is virtually empty. Even though the commander of the Jacksonville Hospital wanted those patients, we couldn't get a Navy installation command to let us cross the gate if you didn't have a retiree card. And even if I wanted to send something routine like a knee replacement, and they had orthopedic surgeons that were entirely competent to do those cases, I couldn't get people across the gate unless they were in ambulance. And then I couldn't get a family across the gate in order to visit. And it was not the medical groups that were causing the problems. Medical groups were all aligned. It was really installation command in Army, Navy that really caused the problems and us being unable to get that work done 
one of the most frustrating challenges I had in all the work I did. Yeah, that has always been a issue on top of my mind is the lack of inner coordination between those two agencies. How would you rate the Veteran Health Administration's response to COVID? And what lessons did you learn that should be applied for future pandemics? So I'm just finishing a book on what it was to lead America's largest healthcare system through the first 18 months of the pandemic. This was a tough, you know, once in a hundred year challenge. And the VA's fourth mission, you know, first mission is care for veterans, second education, third research, and fourth be the backstop to American healthcare systems that get overwhelmed. So we were in good shape when it came to being ready to do that fourth mission. But as it began to spread across the entire country simultaneously, we were really challenged. And in the first year of the pandemic, from really January of 20 till the end of 20, we hired 85,000 new people uh, because Congress gave us the resources to do that. And that's what sustained me. One of my big concerns was when politicians were making decisions on where DOD assets would go. You know, I think they exhausted DOD by getting ships out for no reason, by deploying teams into areas where they really didn't need help. There was some areas that were overwhelmed, but we had politicians deploying the comfort and the mercy, and then we found that they were completely underutilized, and it exhausted DOD as an asset early in the pandemic, and uh, really cost the movement of a, a lot of active duty family members out in the community when there was no ability to care for them out in the community. As such, you know, the VA ended up doing about 195 separate missions in 49 states through the next year and a half. And uh, it was tough business. I think the other piece that uh, we had no idea that we were going to get recognized for is our ability to deliver chronic long-term living facilities care safely. And in most of the civilian marketplace, there may be one nurse on a ship. And everything else is delivered in nursing homes through uh, nurses' aides or nursing assistants. They had uh, no ability to really understand what it was to do appropriate infection control. And therefore, you had the awful events that occurred in New Jersey and Hawaii, where we had massive deaths in uh, either state-run veterans' homes or in uh, commercial nursing homes. You know, that said, uh, one of the things we were able to do is our geriatricians and our geriatric infectious disease specialists and uh, our, frankly, our just regular ID people were able to train appropriate skills and our nurses were able to bring in teams. We had teams all over the country training in nursing homes and what it was to deliver appropriate infection control. I think we did a good job. I think uh, we did well prepping. Uh, so let me sort of move from our initial response to what we did for vaccination. I think we prepared the veteran population well. We did a lot of sensing sessions in areas like the Southeast where there's a low acceptance of vaccination. And we found that the religious communities were what really had a lot of credence with veterans in places like Mississippi and Louisiana. And we partnered with them to teach what the vaccines were. And I was really proud of the fact that Black and Hispanic veterans actually accepted the vaccine at higher rates than our white veterans. Now, that told me I didn't do a good job with the white veterans and educating them on what we needed. 
but you know, we reversed what was being seen in the rest of America by really partnering with the religious communities. And um, it was very, very effective in, in how we worked. I think um, we did a very good job of getting our systems up and running and our ability to deliver hundreds of thousands of vaccines every day across the nation. Those were pretty exciting times as we got ready to do that. And all of us, even in, you know, the command suites and in central offices, if we had medical skill sets, we repurposed ourselves um, for weeks at a time doing uh, immunizations as we attempted to reduce the demand on the healthcare systems. So sticking with the national support of healthcare needs in the nation, there's been some recent talk about the VA providing healthcare at the border, anticipating a surge in migrant passage. What are your thoughts on the VA in that mission? There's not enough asset to do that. You're going to get yourself into all sorts of trouble. You've got a huge backlog of delayed and deferred care, and um, there's not enough asset to do that. And that'd be a disservice to the American veteran. So you've also served in leadership roles with civilian and nonprofit healthcare corporations. What have you found as the most significant difference in leading these organizations compared to the military and VA healthcare delivery? Yeah, transactional care. Everything was about transactional care. Everything was about how many uh, vascular bypasses you did, how many tracheostomies you did. It was all transactions of care. Look, they were good at it. They were really good at it. And the quality of the outcomes of the procedures were good. We would get people through the acute episode. You'd save their lives. But you weren't providing the integrated long-term care to take care of the comorbid conditions. Let me give you the best example of that. If you are a black male in America and develop prostate cancer, your chance of dying in America is dramatically higher than Hispanic or white males that get prostate cancer, except in one subpopulation, and that is veterans, black veterans enrolled in VA healthcare, where we erase that disparity. And we erase it not because we're brilliant at prostate care. Now, every prostate cancer specialist in the VA is going to be mad at me for saying this. You know, they're a great team, but it's because we erase the comorbid condition. So their hypertension is under better control. Their diabetes is under better control. That's the difference. It is really care integration and long-term care that you and I want for ourselves and our families that makes the difference in these systems. And what I saw in the commercial space was it was all about how your performance was financially on a 30-day basis and you know how much work you were doing. And therefore, it was about pushing more patients through, how quickly you discharge patients. And it wasn't really about care integration. Let me give you another example of that. A veteran with esophageal cancer four weeks post-surgery gets COVID. He was in because of some complications with a leak in his esophageal cancer surgery, tough situation, and uh, really an at-risk guy. He's at a major university hospital up in the Midwest, and they say to him, you have COVID, we can't do anything for you, we're going to discharge you because you're too high risk to our other patients. They discharge him without ever recognizing the fact that his wife has stage four breast cancer. He goes home and gives her COVID. That's a failure, a fundamental failure to understand 
exactly what care integration is about and that you're treating the whole family, not just the patient. Now, they have both survived. They're both doing well. It's amazing how well they're doing. But we had to bring him into the VA in order to really protect that family. And I will tell you, quite honestly, that it's the perfect example of what's wrong with the American healthcare system and why places like the VA and DOD are so important and why anything that disassembles them is a major mistake to what the future of American healthcare should be about. Now, everybody that wants to transform healthcare wants to talk to you about data, and that's great. Predicting risk is great. But fundamentally, what you and I do as providers is deal with individuals and their innately human individual processes that you've got to understand what's going on with this family. And if I needed to keep a patient in isolation for three to five more days to protect that family, that's exactly what had to happen, even if my numbers didn't look good at the end of the day. So what's different is that a lot of the length of stay issues, things like that, just don't bear out when you're doing good integrated healthcare. And uh, it's a different way of looking at things and I think bears some substantial debate. That doesn't mean that if I have a heart attack in the next five minutes and you guys call 911 to my address, they won't do a great job of saving my life. But in the long term, what led me to that heart attack, I don't think they do a good job of at all. I just want to take one step back. During your time on active duty, um, especially in your command positions, did your clinical expertise in dermatology ever serve you well while deployed? In uh, Afghanistan, I was able to pick up a case of cutaneous tuberculosis, wow. which really I'd never seen before. And um, it was pretty amazing. This guy came in with these warty things all over his hands. And somebody said, oh, I got a guy covered with warts. And I looked at him and said, no, this isn't warts. This is <laughs> cutaneous TB. And uh, can I tell you that in my entire career, I think that's the only time I had value as a dermatologist. <laughs> and, you know, that doesn't mean that people aren't doing great work in dermatology clinics. I got it. And there's things going on that you need help with. But from my career, you know, I think that was the only time I really had value as a dermatologist. <laughs> so you made some great points about the integration of healthcare within the VA system. Is there something else that people should know about the medical care delivery to military members in the DOD or the veterans in the VHA that they don't know about that they should? Um, substantial portion of our population has mental illness. Some of it's minor, some of it's really major mental illness. It's complicated by the amount of, um, of sexual assault and military sexual trauma that occurs. I was overwhelmed with how much military sexual trauma we were treating inside the VA and active duty members that refused to go to their active duty sites because they didn't want anybody to know in their chain of command. And so we treated and that made a lot of people crazy on the DOD side that we were doing work that people didn't know about. Treating veterans with mental illness or military sexual trauma is different than it is out in the commercial space. It's really unique to the experiences that people have. All of us that are combat experienced know how unique those experiences are and how comfortable you feel when you're around somebody that this is what they do every day. When I was sent to a specialist out at an outside medical center and I had to explain some of my experiences, I was shocked at how little they understood at what service members do 
and what combat experienced service members do. Of the veterans in the United States, 70% of us are combat experienced. Those are unique. And it is, I think it is only within DOD and VA that you can get really competent care for the kinds of things that we see and really the kind of changes that occur. I also believe that cognitive decline is best helped in a really integrated system. And I talked a little bit about that earlier, but especially cognitive decline in mentally ill patients, you can't get anybody in the commercial space to take care of them. These are really tough patients. And we've been able to provide teams that would support that if you know somebody wasn't eligible to come in because they weren't disabled at the level that Congress said they should be to be in a, a VA facility, that if they went to a private facility, we could support the commercial space and help them with the complex care of these sort of multiple mental illness, cognitive decline, dependent on pain medicine issues that uh, we would run into. When they're writing the history books 50 to 100 years from now, and they find this podcast, what would you want people to remember about your legacy in military and federal health care? I found good talent and I let them work. I created an environment for them that allowed them to work to the top of their potential, that drew out every bit of talent that they had. And um, I was smart enough to recognize that if I had people way smarter than me around me, I'd be very successful. And uh, my job was to recruit and hold that team and let them work. We've been speaking with retired Army Major General, Dr. Rich Stone. Rich, thanks again for your insights and experiences, and thank you for your service. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for both of yours. Appreciate this time. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.